0: From Washington, this is Political Theater, Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. This is going to be a politics-punching political theater podcast. We're going to be talking to Stu Rothenberg, Roll Call's political analyst about the generic ballot and the November 2018 midterm elections. And then later on, we're going to be joined by Bridget Bowman, Roll Call's senior political reporter, talking about the upcoming special election in Arizona. Stu, welcome to Political Theater. Thanks so much, Jason. Uh, first time uh, in on, on the podcast. I, uh, I've been trying to get you uh, in, into the studio, and I really appreciate you coming in. There is a lot of polling and a lot of reporting and speculation that the democratic advantage in generic ballot questions, who you want to control Congress, is, is evaporating and going away. You wrote in a recent column for Roll Call with the great headline, "The generic is falling. The generic is falling." That uh, it's a little bit more complicated. Is it true that the Democratic advantage in the generic ballot is shrinking?
1: Some of that is true. If you compare the generic ballot, the ask, ask people who they whether they're going to vote for Republicans or Democrats for Congress, the numbers jump around, and uh, there was a, the numbers spiked for the. Re- for the Democrats in the mid-December, and now uh, the back settling back to a five to eight-point range advantage for the Democrats, which many people will say is not enough to flip the House. But the point of the column really was: um, don't become a prisoner of any one number of any one survey question. Uh, stand back. There, there, there are poll questions on the president's job performance and his uh, positive or negative uh, attitudes president uh, poll numbers on the generic ballot poll numbers on the role of government what should government be doing there are special elections there are uh, state legislative results Virginia governor's races there's a lot of stuff out there and I, I you know I think there's a tendency for us to every day look for the latest number to understand whether the house is going to flip how many seats the Democrats are going to gain and my attitude is yeah I understand that that's that's part of the fun it's part of the game but relax, settle, settle down. There'll be a lot of news, a lot of developments between yesterday and election day in November. And those events are likely to impact the outcome of the election.
0: And one of the, your previous columns, you noted that the, I mean, turnout is obviously, I mean, it's it's the cliche, right? I mean, that turnout, it always depends on turnout. But it turns out to be true in this case. It's not
1: just uh, our (laughs) our attempt to cover our behinds. It's actually true. We don't know who's going to vote. The pollsters don't know who's going to vote. That's why they're often off.
0: It's, it's hard to keep the House for so many consecutive times. I mean, in, in the, particularly in our current political situation. I mean, we had this incredible stability in the latter part of the 20th century where Democrats basically held the House from the 1950s to the 1990s. We've seen a couple of swings back and forth now. and it, the, But the number of retirements that we're seeing on the Republican side alone would suggest that, that the Democrats are, are in pretty reasonable striking distance.
1: Oh, there's no question. I think at this point we can certainly say the House is in play. Can you say that it's definitely positively absolutely going to flip? No. Can you say that the Republicans are absolutely definitely going to hold it? No. But it's certainly in play, and the retirements are one of the considerations, one of the factors. The other is um, even though the president's numbers on the economy and the numbers themselves on the economy are so terrific – uh, people are positive, <laughs> upbeat, think the, think the economy is getting better. Uh, when you look at the president's accomplishments, when you look at just the general sense of the business community, the tax cuts, the successes, you think, wow, this guy's – the party is, is a slam dunk to hold the House and the Senate. But uh, the party – the president is such a polarizing figure and uh, uh, you know the economy is always the decisive factor in midterm elections when it's in bad shape. But when it's in a good shape, it gives voters the opportunity to look at other things. They don't have to worry about the economy. They can look at other things. And in this case, the president, uh, the president's controversial comments and the the, the Oval Office's, uh, the way they behave in and around there uh, has alienated more than half of the electorate, it looks like.
0: Well, and it seems like this this story about Rob Porter, the staff secretary who has been accused of domestic uh, abuse, this seems to be a story that's kind of sticking. Uh, and and it, it, it's, it's almost as if it, it confirms what a lot of people who are already critical of the president are, are suspecting along and sort of raising their ire that, that the president and his staff are not being upfront about what happened. They certainly weren't helped by the FBI director yesterday mm-hmm. saying n- that the, he had a different timeline. Uh, and he said it in sworn testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee. So um, th- this – but again, we're so far out from November. I mean is that something that, – is that just going to be one sort of block? It's hard to imagine that that is going to be this deciding factor. Well, there you know, could
1: be 10 other things that pop up between now and the November midterms. I expect they will given this White House. Um, the the problem for Republicans is that anything that pops up tends to be bad. It seems you know. I mean, we could get more good economic numbers, but that wouldn't change the economy, which people are already optimistic about. Uh, I suppose the president could could come out at any moment and acknowledge um, uh, that that he was mistaken about something and 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 try to get on the good side of an issue. But so far, all his instincts are to either clam up or um, if I wanted to be kind, I would say shave the truth, sh- shade the truth. But you know, they they seem to lie a lot and often unnecessarily and and and, and unbelievably. Uh, so yeah, no, I think there will be other incidents. Now you know they could be helpful or or unhelpful for the White House.
0: Something you said just a little earlier and says that the the economy, when it's good, is rarely the deciding factor. And I was thinking that okay, in, in 1994, you know, we had. Uh, a, a growing economy. Um, we we had had a recession in 1992 or in the early part of the 90s, but in 1994 the the economy was in fairly good shape, and the Democrats just got slaughtered. Um, they they lost both chambers. Um, they and then in 2006 again we were we were in a, a time of relatively economic. Decent times at, at at a minimum, we'd gotten out of the recession of the early two thousands, and there were, again the Republicans they lost both chambers uh, and and really started this sort of lame duck part of George W. Bush's presidency. So is is I guess that's something we, we could sort of calibrate into the, into our into our sort of projections.
1: Kind of what I've always found is, um, voters who are angry tend to vote in midterms. If you're content, if you're satisfied. Um, there isn't that urgency. And so um, in bad times, everybody's angry and everybody <laughs> wants to send a message. But in good times, it's, it depends on who is angry and who is frustrated or disappointed.
0: Some of the comments that the Republicans have latched onto that Nancy Pelosi, in particular, the House Minority Leader, a Democrat from California, have has made that that the tax cuts amounted to crumbs for the middle class and, and lower classes in the in the in the country. I mean, we're we're seeing a lot of uh, Republicans latch onto that. There was a Senate candidate, Todd Rakita, who introduced this legislation called the Crumbs Act to sort of troll Pelosi and so forth. Is is that is there a danger for Democrats that they have stepped on their own economic message by by belittling what might be something that people feel positive about.
1: I thought it was a silly comment from the democratic leader when I heard it crumbs whether you're talking about hundreds or thousands of dollars I think for real people those aren't crumbs. So that's a that was a silly unforced error the good news for the Democrats is that the White House and the Republicans are making many more unforced errors and surrounded by more controversy. So um, it's not as though that the Democratic Party is in that much better shape right now. It's that all the focus and the onus is on uh, President Trump. The Democrats still have a long-term problem going to 2020 uh, because they're divided and there are differences of opinion on what issues to pursue and, and how far left to go. So what you saw with Pelosi's comment, it was, uh, again, Democrats kind of a little – with a little bit of a tin ear. The advantage is in the midterm election, all the focus is is on the other guys, and the other guys are playing things uh, in some respects worse. Uh, The Porter um, controversy is the obvious example, the most recent one.
0: People who are sort of longtime observers of democratic politics, and they see people like Nancy Pelosi or Steny Hoyer. You know, they they see this older generation of of leaders, and they it's almost like they want to they, they want to make them go away, get out of the way of the Republicans delivering their message, as you say, and let the people sort of you know vote on that, as opposed to holding the floor for eight hours uh, and and talking about uh, the immigration debate. I mean, is is this? Is this a tactical error on on Democratic leaders' parts to, to try to continue to insert themselves, or should they just get uh, out of the, the way?
1: I think this is the inevitable problem. Leaders think that they should lead, and that means be out front and talking a lot and stating the party's position, uh, and some of that needs to be done. Um, part of the problem is that... Uh, Nancy Pelosi has been around a long time, and she's built up a lot of support within her caucus. Raises a lot yet, of money, and right? yet, You're and sure. yet, outside to 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 other voters, she's she she's the permanent Democratic messenger, and that's a problem. So. Uh, yeah, I think generally it's best if Democrats get out of the way and let the Republicans shoot at one another. But you do, from time to time, need party spokesmen out there laying down the party's positions and co- trying to contrast them with the White Houses and Republican con- congressional leaders. But in general, yeah, it's, uh, it's best to let the uh, other guys um, hang themselves. Stu, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for dropping by. Pleasure.
0: We're now going to talk a little bit about a race that we don't expect to be competitive at the general level. It's not a seat that's going to flip. It'll likely stay Republican in Arizona. But some of the issues that will define the primary, particularly on the Republican side, are very interesting. And Bridget Bowman, our senior political reporter, is going to run us through the candidates that we uh, will see competing for the later on the general election coming up in April. Bridget, welcome.
2: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: So this uh, special election was triggered with the resignation of Congressman Trent Franks, a Republican from Arizona who left under a a strange cloud uh, uh, in the sort of end of year morass. There were a few people who decided to leave Congress. Uh, Franks was one of them after coming to a member of his staff and asking if uh, she would be a, a surrogate. Uh, for him, so that's uh, that's where we're at. He left at the end of last year. There are it just seems like a lot of candidates, a lot of Republicans at least, competing for this primary election seat. There are a couple of Democrats. We'll get to them in a little bit, but the real action is on the Republican side of the ledger. Correct?
2: That's right, because this is this is considered to be a pretty solidly Republican district. Uh, Trump won it by 20 points in 2016. Both Romney and McCain won it by more than 20 points as well. Um, so. A big fight here is in the Republican primary, and there are 12 candidates on the ballot um, in on February 27th on the primary date.
0: Couldn't there have been a 13th? <laughs> we would have like a baker's dozen.
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> couldn't, have, couldn't have gotten one more in there. Um, but there are really, as I've been talking to folks in the state, uh, there are four candidates that kind of are... Talked about most often, uh, the top two who are considered the two front runners include State Senator Debbie Lesko. Uh, she's been endorsed by the House Freedom Caucus and by former Governor Jan Brewer. And then the second front runner is. Uh, former state legislator and former Frank staffer, Steve Montenegro. Uh, Franks actually asked him to run for the seat. He's also endorsed Montenegro. Uh, and for
0: however much help that may be. It uh, actually
2: sounds like it has been pretty helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montenegro also has the backing of Arpaio and Senator Ted Cruz. Former
0: Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who was pardoned by the president.
2: That's right. Um, Two of the other candidates that are mentioned among kind of people to watch, but in according to these operatives that have seen polling numbers, they're kind of falling behind with the rest of the pack, Um, but they include former state legislator Phil Lovis. He was Trump's state co-chair for his presidential campaign in Arizona. Um, as well as former state legislator Bob Stump, who is not related to the late congressman Bob Stump, which caused some bit of a controversy, uh, some confusion about him using that name. Um,
0: and, and part of the reason is is that this is, most of this district cons- comprises the late Bob Stump's old district. Uh, it's the western part of Phoenix. Uh, it used to be a little bit more expansive. expansive. It's more compact around the, the, the sort of Phoenix metropolitan area. Mm-hmm. But, but Bob Stump, everybody knew who Bob Stump was. He, was, he came to Congress. in the the 70s. He was uh, chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. He was sort of a name. uh, This... The current Stump, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, was the, was part of the Arizona Corporation Commission. Uh, so he he's not uh, completely out of left field or anything like that. Right. But, but he didn't go by Bob Stump until recently.
2: Right. And not related to the former congressman. So it's um, he apparently initially in the polls was doing fairly well, but has since kind of lagged behind. A lot of the spending, particularly outside spending, has really focused on Lesko and Montenegro so far in this primary.
0: So that's a lot of Republicans. It will likely be a Republican seat. Uh, it's, it's a very strong Republican area area. So Bridget, why do we care about this race?
2: Well, whoever wins the primary is going to be very well positioned to be a member of Congress. Um, It's also interesting to see some of these more national issues playing out. Uh, Loyalty to Trump has been key in this primary, as well as border security and immigration. Uh, One Republican strategist described the border as the number one, two, and three issues among Republican primary voters here. And that's something we've also seen reflected in some ads for these
1: candidates. Our southern border is a war zone. Illegal immigrants cross our border ignoring our laws. That's why I support President Trump's plan to build the wall, but that's not enough. We need more border patrol agents and the best technology to stop this invasion. I'm Debbie Lesko.
0: Many candidates claim to be conservative. But only Steve Montenegro is endorsed by Congressman Trent Franks, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, and Senators Ted Cruz and Rick Santorum. Only Steve Montenegro defended President Trump's decision to end DACA amnesty on national media outlets like CNN. In these times, Arizona needs a congressman we can trust, an unwavering leader who will stand with our president as he makes America great again. Phil Lovis has stood with our president. Phil Lovas. A conservative leader who stood up for Donald Trump and will stand by him as your congressman. Are you ready to make America
2: great again? They're probably not going to need a huge percentage of the vote. Probably less than, not even get to a majority, just because so the field no is so crowded. No runoff. Okay. So whoever wins the primary goes on to the general, special general election in April.
0: And we, and we should note too that uh, Congressman Franks, former Congressman Franks, won the primary. Uh, in the Republican primary to succeed, succeed Bob Stump in 2002 with 28 percent of the vote, uh, which was uh, apparently the last time he had any kind of race at all, <laughs> uh, because I think his lowest winning percentage since coming to Congress in 2002 is like 59 percent.
2: Yeah. Democrats haven't even had a candidate there since 2012. So he's been pretty easily reelected in recent terms, too. And he still sounds like he's fairly popular among Republican primary voters. Folks that I've talked to who've seen kind of internal polling numbers um, say that he still looked pretty favorably despite the circumstances around which he left uh, office.
0: And it seems that that Franks was, you know, representative of the district. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's a a very conservative person, uh, very conservative on social issues, but he's also, uh, the, the district is very conservative.
2: That's right. Um, It's in the Phoenix suburbs, as you mentioned. um, It's vast majority white, about 70% of the population. A lot of the population is also older. There's the Sun City retirement community there. Um, So these voters tend to be very conservative, older Republican voters, um, who, as I mentioned, folks that I've talked to there stress that border, border security is really a top issue for them.
0: And we should mention a couple the, There are two Democrats running uh, for, the, for the right to take on whoever the eventual uh, winner of the Republican primary. Let's talk about them just real quick.
2: Sure. So the top Democratic candidate appears to be Dr. Hiral tipperneni She is a physician and she is one strategist I talked to. You mentioned she could have an advantage as a political outsider. A lot of these Republicans are former state legislators and have records. Um, the other Democratic candidate is Brian... and not a
0: record like Joe Arpaio had a record.
2: Right. Okay. Not the criminal record, a voting record. Um, the other Democratic candidate is Brianna Westbrook. She's an LGBT activist. She is also transgender. Um, so it's it, Dr. Tipper has been raising a lot more money. So she's expected to win the primary there. But should note that Democrats are targeting 101 seats in 2018. And this district is not on that list, given how Republican it is. But some Democrats say, you know, special elections are special and you never know. <laughs>
0: Bridget, thanks so much for taking a few moments to explain this race.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to thank Stu Rothenberg and Bridget Bowman for joining us on Political Theater. I'm Jason Dick. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One. And please rate us on iTunes. For more on this and other stories, you can visit RollCall.com or find us on Twitter at CQNow or at RollCall. Thank you for listening.